Wow, wasn't that magnificent? Thank you so much. Thank you. I want to say what a pleasure and a privilege it is to worship with you, brothers and sisters. It really is a privilege to worship with God's people on the Sabbath, God's day. As I look around and look across the congregation, I see many familiar faces. And it's wonderful to meet with friends, family, and God's people as we worship together today. And I feel right at home. I trained at Avondale College, and so during my four years in Kurunbong, I spent many Sabbaths worshiping here in this church. And uh, I see there the Nashes, Clive and Monica, who nursed me through my first two years of ministry in the Barossa Valley in, in South Australia. So as I say, I feel, I feel right at home. And I want to thank you for your kind welcome and uh, your goodness to me. Last Sabbath, I was in Mackay in North Queensland, and uh, they scheduled me in to preach four sermons last Sabbath. So I'm grateful just to preach one sermon this, uh, this Sabbath day. The Sabbath before that, we were in England and Northern Ireland um, producing a series of programs on some of the, the great characters of Christianity. We produced a program on the Wesleys. And as we were singing the hymns today, I noticed that two of our hymns were written by Fanny Crosby, a great hymn writer. And of course, possibly the greatest hymn writer of all was Charles Wesley. And to follow in their footsteps and produce a program on the Wesleys was indeed, indeed a privilege. But friends, how good it is that we can meet together this Sabbath day right here in Kurunbong to worship the Lord. We produce programs that go to air each Sunday morning. They are programs that are specifically designed for people who would not normally attend a church service. One of the programs that we have produced that produced the greatest response for some time was a program called The Gift of Forgiveness. The story of the Biggers, a family who lost their beloved daughter to a violent crime. I want to share their story with you. And so as you leave today, you'll be able to just call into the, the welcome center on the right here as you leave and pick up a DVD on that story, that program, and also a booklet that goes with it called Forgiving the Unforgivable. Friends, we're not giving you these to keep. We're giving you them to read and to watch and then to share with your friends, your neighbors, the people you work with. Friends, we believe that Jesus is coming soon. And so at The Incredible Journey, we are producing 
materials, resources to lead people to Jesus. We are your neighbors just down the road here at Dora Creek. And we are also your partners in the Lord's work. And so if there's any way we can assist you with resources, we've got books and DVDs and different resources that share the good news of Jesus. And if you can use any of those resources in your own work as a, as a minister, as a witness to Jesus Christ, then please feel free, come and visit us, and we would be happy to assist you in any way we can with these resources to share the good news of Jesus. I'm going to try to come a little closer to you, and I'm going to move to the podium below, if you don't mind, uh, just so that I can be a little closer to you as we commence our service this morning. As we open the Word of God, I'm going to invite you just to bow your heads, and we'll invite the Lord to be with us. Dear Heavenly Father, as we worship today, we praise your name, we honor you, we recognize you as the master of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth. And Lord, as we worship today, we invite your presence to be with us. And Father, it is our earnest prayer that as a result of this time spent together, each one of us present here will be drawn closer to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I'm going to start the sermon today with a who am I? Now my wife is a school teacher and she warned me that asking for a response from the class or the congregation just creates chaos. So as we work through this who am I? I'm going to ask you, as you identify the individual, just to raise your hand. You can put it back down again then. You don't have to call out. You don't have to say anything. But work with me on uh, discovering the identity of this character. I was born in 1855 in Beveridge, Victoria. I was the eldest son of eight children. I am an Irishman by descent. My name is Edward, my first name. No hands up yet? All right. I died at the gallows in Melbourne jail on the 11th, aha, the 11th of November, 1880. I wore a suit of armor. I am a bush ranger. My name, Ned Kelly. Here's another one. Let's see if we, can, if we can identify this character. I was born on the 21st of April, 1926. I have four children. My middle names are Alexandra and Mary. Any, any, oh yes, okay, all right. <laughs> I am the ruler of 16 countries. 
I am the first monarch to reach 90 years of age. My husband is Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh. I am a queen. Of course, we all know I am Queen Elizabeth II. Now, how do we know so much about Ned Kelly? We know about him because we have a detailed description of his life. How do we know so much about Queen Elizabeth II? We know about her because we have a detailed description of her life. We have what we refer to as biographies of the lives of famous people. Now, a biography is a detailed description of a person's life. It presents a person's life story. It's a written history of a person's life. After the events in that individual's life have taken place, someone records the person's life story. They outline all the basic facts and events associated with that person's life. Now, let me ask you a question. Could someone's biography be written before they were born? Could someone's biography be written before the events actually take place? Now, friends, if someone could do that, they would be unique and very special. If a book could be written that was able to do that, it would be unique and special. Today, I'm going to introduce you to a man whose biography was written before he was born. Our sermon titled, Destiny, The Emperor's Story. We're going to follow in the footsteps of Cyrus, who is regarded as one of the most outstanding figures in history. In fact, Cyrus was the first leader to be referred to as the Great. Cyrus the Great. In history, he's recognized as a fearless warrior, the founder of a great worldwide empire and the liberator of oppressed nations. The Persians called him father. The Greeks whom he conquered saw him as a, as a worthy ruler and lawgiver and the Jews referred to him, the Hebrews referred to him as the Lord's anointed. Truly one of the great men of history. Cyrus the Great even receives a mention by name in the Bible. In fact, friends, Cyrus is mentioned 23 times in the Bible, and he received the very highest of praise. Now, Cyrus was born in 600 BC into a, a family of Persian nobles, the son of the chief. When his father died, he took his father's throne 
and he set about uniting the Persian tribes, scattered and warring against each other, involved in eternal strife. He set about uniting them and formed them into the Persian nation. He quickly began expanding the empire. He began expanding his rule. He was a warrior. He was a leader. And soon he was the most powerful ruler of his time. But his most daunting challenge lay before him. He had managed to exert his influence and his power over the various splintered tribes that made up the Persian people. He'd been able to unite them. He'd been able to expand his empire as a great leader, a fearless warrior, a great military tactician. But now came his greatest challenge. He set out to conquer the mighty kingdom of Babylon. Why was Babylon such a challenge? Well, Babylon was the golden city, possibly the most wonderful city this world has ever seen. A golden city, not just by name. It was a city filled with gold. A marvelous city. And King Nebuchadnezzar, who built this city, designed it to last forever. And he did everything possible to ensure that. He fortified it and protected it with two outer walls. The inner wall was four meters thick and the outer wall was nine meters wide. The city was considered impregnable. It was designed to last forever. And so in the year 539, Cyrus marched on mighty Babylon for his appointment with destiny. Cyrus led his army, he surrounded the city, he, he camped outside the, 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 the outer wall. But the king inside and his soldiers were unafraid. Because they knew that there were no weapons that were a match for Babylon's mighty walls. They were confident. They were comfortable. And pretty much life went on as normal. Because they knew that there was no military power on the face of the planet who could breach the walls of Babylon. And they had enough food inside to last them 20 years. Ah, confidence, assurance, certainty. And so the king and his nobles, we all know the story, engaged in a great feast to show their contempt at Cyrus's attempt to capture their city capital of an empire, one of the world's first great world empires. Cyrus had to do something unique. He had to come up with a strategy unheard of to conquer Babylon. 
and his tactics are recorded in the annals of history as some of the most amazing of all time. He had his engineers divert the river Euphrates, which ran diagonally through the city into an artificial lake. He had his engineers go upstream and they diverted the waters that flowed through the city of Babylon. And then he marched his army along the dry riverbed into the city through the great double door gates that had been carelessly left open. And so it was that Cyrus, head of the Persian army, entered Babylon, overthrew the city and its defenses, and was now also called the king of Babylon. The greatest city in the world fell without a struggle. At its peak, Cyrus's empire reached from the Aegean Sea in the west to India in the east. From the Caucasus in the north to the borders of Egypt in the south. It was the largest empire the world had ever seen. But my friends, as remarkable and outstanding as his achievements were, the most remarkable aspect of Cyrus's life was that it was all written down 100 years before he was born. One of the most astounding prophecies ever made predicted that Cyrus would be the one who would capture the city of Babylon. He would be the one who would free the Jewish captives and assist them in returning home to Jerusalem and restoring their sacred temple. Here's what the Bible says. Isaiah chapter 44. And verse 27. If you've got your Bibles, you might like to notice it with me. If not, you can read it with me on the screen. Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 27. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers? Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform my pleasure? Even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be what? You shall be rebuilt, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him, and loose the armor of kings to open before him the double doors, so that the gates will not be shut. What a prediction. Friends, just think with me for a moment. The details of this prophecy, this prediction, made 100 years before Cyrus was born. Notice first, it gave his name. He was identified by name 100 years before he was born. It was predicted that he would capture Babylon. The tactics that he would use were all outlined. He would dry up the river. The type of gates the city would have, those double gates, even though details 
were given in this prophecy written 100 years before Cyrus was born. It was predicted that those great double gates would be left open. Think of it, friends. Calling him, identifying him by name. Predicting that he would conquer Babylon. And the very tactics that he would use were outlined. Describing how the gates would be left open. But my friends, there's more. There's more to this great prophecy. Notice as we read on in verse chapter 45 and verse 13. I have raised him up in righteousness. And I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and he shall let go my captives. Not for price nor reward, saith the Lord of hosts. More detail. More detail regarding Cyrus. The gates would be left open, but then he would rebuild or give the, 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 the decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. He would set free the Jewish captives from Babylon. All the details laid out in this prophecy written 100 years before Cyrus was born. The Bible identified him by name predicted his rise to power, his conquest of Babylon and his military tactics. It also predicted that he would be responsible for the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the temple, so that the Jews could be freed and return home to their promised land and their capital city, Jerusalem. All of this predicted 100 years before his birth. Cyrus' biography is almost uncanny, too amazing to believe. It seems more fiction than fact. All the details, minute details, written down a century before he was born. Friends, the fact that Cyrus fulfilled all those predictions... Those predictions made about him in God's Word, the Bible, is even more amazing when you know the story of his birth and childhood. Think about this for a moment. The enemy of God, the enemy of souls, was aware of this prophecy. And he knew very well that if he could go about his nefarious activities in a way, he may be able to break the prophecy and ensure that Cyrus never fulfilled his destiny. The story of Cyrus' birth and childhood is absolutely amazing. The characters in this real-life drama are Astyages, the Median king, Mandane, the princess, the daughter of this king, and then there's Cambyses, Mandane's husband, there's Hypagius, a trusted army general, and there's Mithridates, a shepherd. Finally, there is Cyrus, the central figure 
in this drama. Now, Astyages, the king, had a premonition that his daughter would have a son. And this son would rise up to usurp his throne. And so he decided that he would do everything in his power to ensure that this did not happen. And so he gave Mandane in marriage, not to a Mede, but to a Persian. A Persian named Cambyses, because he assumed that no half Persian, the son of Mandane, would ever be able to unite the tribes and claim the Median throne. And so he set about ensuring that his grandson would never ever be a threat to him. And Mandane and Cambyses had a son and they named him, as the Bible predicted 100 years earlier, they named him Cyrus. Now, Astyages was paranoid that this prince would one day threaten his throne. And so he began to scheme. He began to plot to ensure that this would never, ever happen. And he ordered his trusted general with the most terrible of all orders. He issued him the order to kill the royal child, the grandson. Now, Pegasus was a, royal, was, a, was a loyal general. But he couldn't come to terms with the idea of killing a child. And so he decided not to kill the baby himself. And instead he ordered his chief shepherd, Mithridates, to get rid of the child. He couldn't do it himself. Great leader and warrior that he was in the army. He was no child killer. And so he gave the responsibility to his chief shepherd. But when the shepherd reached his home, he found his wife weeping. She had given birth to their own son, but sadly, he had died at birth. And together they decided that they would keep the royal baby and bring him up as their own son. And so the clothes of baby Cyrus were exchanged with those of the dead child. And the general assured that the deed had been done. And so it was that the life of Cyrus was saved. And he grew up in the home of the shepherd. And there's an amazing story as to how he moved from, from shepherd to king. How he claimed the throne and became Cyrus the Great. And then, at the appointed time, According to God's great prophetic clock, Cyrus camped before the gates of Babylon. And amazingly, 
Through the, the work of his engineers, the river dried up and the, the double gates were left open and Cyrus went on to fulfill his sacred destiny just as the prophecy predicted. Yes, Cyrus, named by Bible prophecy over 100 years before his birth, fulfilled the prophecy in every detail. You see, friends, fulfilled prophecy is one of the, the greatest evidence that the Bible is a divinely inspired book. In fact, friends, of all the world's major texts, only the Bible contains prophecy. About one-third of the Bible is devoted to prophecy. In fact, there are over 1,000 clear predictions or prophecies in the Bible. A unique book. A book that separates it from all other religious and sacred texts. Because you see, friends, no one but God can accurately predict the future in detail. Men and women try every day. In fact, I can assure you that if you go down to the local grocery store, and you know how before you come to the, the teller, the cashier, they have all those things they want to tempt you with as you're waiting in line. And there they have those glossy magazines. You can open any one of those glossy magazines and there you'll find a horoscope. People predicting the future. Do you know, friends, that in our society, 70% of our population refer to the horoscope? Because we want to know the future. Ingrained in our psyche, as it were, is this desire to know what lies ahead. But the Bible reminds us, and the story of Cyrus reminds us, that no one but God can accurately predict the future in detail. And my friends, God takes this matter of predicting the future very seriously. He leaves no room for mistakes. In fact, God points to his ability to predict the future as proof that he is the one and only true God. Listen to what he says here in the book of Isaiah, just a chapter further on. After this great prophecy on regarding Cyrus, this is what God says. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10, he says here, I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done. There is God's claim and his evidence to be the one and only true God. 
and for his word, the Bible, to be the one and only word of God. The evidence is there. My friends, every prophecy in the Bible is an invitation for people to prove God wrong if they can. But no one ever has. Prophecy, predicting the future, God's word, they go hand in hand. And my friends, every prophecy in the Bible is an invitation to prove him wrong. No wonder such detailed attempts were made to break the Cyrus prophecy and ensure that he never filled his destiny. But my friends, God's word is reliable. It is dependable. Now the primary purpose of prophecy is as we've just read, to give us confidence to trust God and his word, the Bible. But friends, there's another purpose in prophecy. Prophecy is given to show us where we are living in the stream of time. We all want to know how close we are to the coming of Jesus. Isn't that right? We are Adventists. We believe in the Advent, the second coming of Jesus. We believe that Jesus is coming soon. And we base our beliefs on Bible prophecy, our, our reasons for believing that Jesus is coming soon is based on Bible prophecy, isn't that right? Two chapters in the Bible are devoted, Jesus devoted two chapters to give us signs or outlines as to how close we are living to the second coming of Jesus. And so prophecy is given there to show us how close we are, where we are living in the stream of time. And you'll remember the disciples came to Jesus and as they discussed his return, they said, well, when is this going to happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And so Jesus then outlines a series of signs, a series of events that will tell us where we are living in relation to the second coming of Jesus. And so you see, my friends, not only do the Bible prophets make accurate predictions about ancient civilizations, they make amazing predictions about our own modern civilization. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus outlines a series of signs, events, to tell his people, Adventists, where we are living in the stream of time. And my friends, we as Adventists are a people of prophecy. 
In fact, we even find our own identity, our own reason for existence in the prophecies of the Bible. Adventists, let let us never forget our roots, our heritage. We are a people of prophecy. And God has raised us up as a people to proclaim these prophecies so that others can also be aware of where we are living in the stream of time, how close we are to the second coming of Jesus. And my friends, the Bible with its perfect track record has made some amazing predictions regarding the times in which you and I live. Predictions that affect Australia today and throw light on our future. When the disciples came to Jesus with the same question that you and I ask, how close are we to the second coming? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And uh, Jesus then outlines the events that would take place. And we as Adventists know them by heart. And you remember that Jesus said, look, as you come down to the end time, you will know that you've reached that time. When you see that time, the end time, is going to be like two other periods in history. Do you remember what periods they are? Jesus then mentions two other periods in history. And he says, when you see things happening like happened in the days of Noah and in the days of, then you'll know you're on the verge of eternity. Adventist brothers and sisters, the predictions that Jesus made are being fulfilled before our very eyes. May we avoid the slow boiling frog syndrome. Remember the frog, like the warm water, failed to notice. The rising temperature. Friends, let's not be Adventist frogs. Let us be aware and alert as to where we are living in the stream of time. My friends, I believe with all my heart that we are living on the verge of eternity. We are living in the toenails of the great image of Daniel chapter 2. Jesus is coming soon. Why is it important that we know where we are living in the stream of time? Because after Jesus had given those signs, and let, let me just stop here for a moment, because I have people say, what are you talking about? Signs that affect Australia. Our Modern civilization. Well, remember those two time periods that Jesus referred to. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the day of the Son of Man. 
as it was in the days of Lot. My friends, do you remember the days of Lot and what they were renowned for? Since I last preached in this church, my friends, I believe that right here in Australia, we have been given a wake-up call as to where we are living in the stream of time. Friends, there is no difference between the days of Lot and our days. The society that we live in. Friends, what more does God have to do? Let me say this. What we have seen transpire in the last 12 months could never have happened a generation ago. Isn't that right? Could not have happened. Friends, God is giving us an indicator to remind us that we are living on the verge of eternity. Jesus Christ is coming soon. After Jesus had given those signs and events, he told a story. In fact, he told three stories, three parables. You read about them straight after. End of chapter 24, Matthew chapter 24, immediately starting in chapter 25, you find the first story. Story of ten young women. The church. The church that had accepted the invitation to the wedding feast. Isn't that right? The church that was waiting for the bridegroom to come. The church that was ready and waiting. But my friends, how many were ready when the bridegroom arrived? Half. Half. Every time I read that story, I tremble. I tremble for myself and I tremble for God's people. Because, my friends, it is my fear that in the busy age in which we live, and everybody's busy today, everybody's facing their own set of circumstances and situation that keeps us frantically busy. Isn't that right? Frantically busy many times doing good things, more often than not. My friends, the enemy of souls, the enemy of God's people, the enemy of Adventists will keep us busy doing good things so that we neglect our relationship with the bridegroom so that we are not ready to meet him When he comes, half, half of the, of the group who are looking forward to the coming of the bridegroom, half of those who were waiting were not ready when he came. My friends, it is my prayer this morning that we Adventists waiting for Jesus to come, we Adventists, a people of Bible prophecy, 
We Adventists who know the, the signs back to front. We Adventists who know every Bible prophecy by heart. We Adventists, may each one of us take note of where we are living in the stream of time. And may each one of us here this morning, by God's grace, be found ready to meet Jesus when he comes. You see, friends, as Adventists, we talk about the second Advent. But let us never forget that the second Advent is only possible because of the first Advent. Is that not right? The first Advent where the Messiah, according to Bible prophecy, was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem of Judea. The Messiah, who came on time, was baptized on time in 27 AD. The Messiah, who was cut off in the half of the, the midway through that week and crucified on Calvary's cross. The Messiah, who met every detail of the many prophecies who predicted his coming. The Messiah, who died for your sins and mine, who's paid the penalty so that you and I can be ready to meet him at the second advent. That Messiah, who has done everything possible to make it possible for you and me to be ready to meet Jesus. Friends, there's nothing more that God could do. There's nothing more that God can do. He sent his son to pay the penalty for your mistakes and mine. No matter what they may be, no matter how big, no matter how numerous, Jesus paid the penalty so that we Adventists can be ready to meet him when he comes. Oh, friends, Jesus is coming soon. He's coming to take us home. He's building his mansions for you and for me. And my friend, he knows all about you. He knows the color scheme you like. He knows the design in your heart. And be assured this Sabbath morning that there is a place prepared for you in heaven. The only thing that is uncertain is whether you and I are going to be ready. That's the only question, my friends. Let me assure you, just as certainly as Jesus came the first time, he will come the second time. He's coming soon. All those signs, those events have been fulfilled. The gospel is going to all the world. I was reminded of that. You know, that's the last and the great sign. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached where? In all the world. And then the end will come. My friend, the other signs, important as they are, remind us that Jesus is coming soon. But the final sign, the final sign is being produced and finalized right now. The gospel is going to all the world. I was reminded of that just earlier this year. I had the privilege of speaking in Papua New Guinea. 
Now there is a nation, a young nation, that is undergoing enormous change. It's as if they were moving from the Stone Age to the 21st century. But my friends, even in Papua New Guinea, God is sending the good news about Jesus to the farthest flung villages of that new nation, our closest neighbor. Let me say why. When I arrived, they said, you know, we're doing something. We're trying it for the first time. And I must confess, I was skeptical and I said, is this really a good idea? Because what they decided to do was this. They said, Pastor, we have been to the local television channel and we are going to buy airtime so that the sermons that are preached, the Adventist message can go live on national television from one end of Papua New Guinea to the other. They said to me, this is the first time anything like this will have been done in the history of the Seventh-day Adventist church. And sure enough, friends, they had the technicians from MTV right parked outside the church. And uh, they had that sermon go live to every television set in Papua New Guinea. My friends, Jesus said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world. And then, then will come. And friends, if it's happening in Papua New Guinea, a new and, and emerging nation, be assured it's happening in every country around the world. The message that you and I love so dear, the message that culminates in the soon coming of Jesus, is being proclaimed to every nation, kindred, tribe, tongue, and people. Jesus is coming soon. Seventh-day Adventist. Make sure that you are ready to inhabit the mansion that God has prepared for you. May that be the experience of each and every one of us here today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.